Welcome to another episode of the Plant-Based Canada podcast. Join us as we talk to the experts to explore the field of nutritional sciences and how our food choices impact our health and the environment. We sit down with Canadian doctors, dietitians, athletes, climate experts, and others to break down the evidence behind a whole foods plant-based diet and discuss the practical steps we can take in the effort to shift towards a healthier lifestyle. My name is Stephanie Nishi, and today I am joined by Dr. Jennifer Purdy to talk about lifestyle medicine. Dr. Jennifer Purdy is a medical doctor practicing evidence-based lifestyle medicine in Ottawa, Ontario. Additionally, she is a veteran of the Canadian Armed Forces, having served over 23 years. She attended the Royal Military College of Canada for her undergraduate studies and the University of Ottawa for her medical degree in family medicine residency. She is also a diplomate of the American Board of Lifestyle Medicine. Furthermore, Dr. Purdy has been involved with the Green Party of Canada in the Kanata Carlton riding, and she is the health critic in the Green Shadow Cabinet. Hi, Dr. Purdy. Thank you so much for joining us today on the Plant-Based Canada podcast. It's so nice to get to speak with you. Well, it's lovely. Thank you very much for having me. To start things off, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your plant-based journey? Um, for instance, how were you introduced to lifestyle medicine and plant-based practices? And how did this become a part of your life and practice? Yeah, so I, I was very fortunate. I had just finished my residency in 2010. My residency was in family medicine. In two, early 2011, I uh, was in the military at the time and I was given a certain amount of money to go to conferences, but the money basically expired on March 31st. So I had a very limited window to go to conferences before the money basically was no longer, uh, could no longer be used for that current fiscal year. And the only conference I could find was the conference on chronic pain and diet oppression chronic pain and it was held in Ottawa so I go to this conference and I sit in on a clinic or Krishna on, on a talk and there's a medical doctor from Calgary talking about the link between chronic pain and diet and I was totally blown away I'd never heard about this before in, in medical school or in residency unfortunately I didn't take good notes and so I didn't have the doctor's name or where he where he worked but I'll be forever grateful to him and uh, yeah so after that conference I didn't actually do anything about the information I'd heard. I was posted to Trenton at the time, uh, but at the end of that year, and they liked it, during the summer of 2011, I was posted to Petawawa. And then I started to see people, more people with chronic pain, because the army tends to be a more physically, can be very, very physically uh, difficult job to do, like if you're in infantry and the combat arms and that sort of thing. So I'm seeing people with chronic pain and everything's been tried with them, physiotherapy, uh, you know, various medications, other modalities perhaps, and they still weren't getting better. And so then I thought, for some reason, I thought back to this talk I'd heard. And then I tried Googling Calgary pain doctor. And I couldn't find this doctor's name in Calgary and I didn't know what to do and then at one point in one of my google searches I, I landed on dr neil barnard's book foods that fight pain i bought it as an ebook read it was completely blown away and then ordered like 10 copies to lend out to my patients so that they could get the information and and that's when i just uh i slowly began my journey uh one thing that uh, that did happen was i googled neil, neil barnard's name and it came up of course that he was featured in a, a, a little known documentary known as a uh, forks over knives i watched i watched that movie and i still remember my just 
my jaw almost hitting the floor and just this feeling uh, or thought that, oh my goodness, I'm doing everything wrong. And of course I wasn't doing everything wrong, but I was ignoring the dietary uh, piece and how important it was for people with pain or people with cardiovascular disease or diabetes. And then after that, um, it took me a couple of years to become more confident in the information because I was just reading all, all the, the big books by Neil Barnard, Dr. Caudill Esselstyn, uh, Dr. McDougall, uh, et cetera. And uh, then finally I started, I learned about the American College of Lifestyle Medicine in 2017 in the summer. I was starting to think about getting out of the military. And so then I, I heard that they were offering a board certification, like a board exam, uh, so that people could become certified in lifestyle medicine. And I thought, well, that will help my credibility as a family doctor who wants to just basically practice lifestyle medicine. So I wrote the exam, got out of the military, and then uh, opened up my own practice in 2018. That's fantastic. And it sounds like you took a lot of self initiative in order to learn about this different modality that it doesn't seem like it was commonly incorporated into medical training at the time. Do you see lifestyle medicine becoming more common in the training of health professionals these days and as we move forward? Yeah, um, I think there's a couple of programs in the States that are now pushing this. And in Canada, there's a few medical schools, University of Ottawa is not one of them yet, I don't think, uh, that are offering a, a medical, uh, medical instru- like an interest group for in, in nutrition and lifestyle medicine. So there are a few interest groups across the country in various medical schools. It is growing. Yeah, my experience was I got in medical school, like maybe three hours on the Canada food guide, the old Canada food guide. And there was a, there was a doctor who kind of guess review was reviewing the Canada food guide or nutrition in residency. And he said, the food guide is a biased document, which of course it was at the time. And there was industry interest at the table and that sort of thing. And, and I, I had no idea. And I, uh, but he didn't have any recommendations in terms of what people should be eating. So I was kind of like, like most doctors, I was flying blind until I just happened to go to the right conference happened to hear the right doctor, and then just kind of got sucked into the vortex and, and, and found all this out, which is wonderful. That's great that you've really done like a deep dive into this. And I believe it's been mentioned that you're actually one of the pioneers and early adopters of lifestyle medicine in Canada, in addition to being one of the first Canadian physicians to become certified with the American Board of Lifestyle Medicine and one of the very few dedicated lifestyle medicine clinics in Canada that is also OHIP covered, which I feel is a very big deal. Could you tell us more about this and about the Canadian Lifestyle Medicine Advocacy Group that you have been one of the leads in setting up? Yeah, also, well, I'm great to my colleagues, Ian and Maria, because yeah, we three have been working on this for the last few years. And they've done fantastic work to help us get to this point where we now have this interest group, which is kind of linked to the American College of Lifestyle Medicine, so that we, uh, can, we can basically get everybody under the same roof and uh, you know, be able to attend the conferences and also just have a better networking capability. Uh, we already have, I believe, uh, for the last year or so, we've had about 170 physicians and other allied healthcare professionals uh, on, on my mailing list. And uh, so it is growing in Canada. It has been challenging. Like I have been one of the only family doctors up until recently who was only doing this, uh, no primary care uh, whatsoever. Not that I don't believe in primary care, but I just, my heart's in lifestyle medicine is so rewarding and I was the only person doing it. So I figured I'd just try and do that full time. It wasn't easy because even though it was covered by OHIP, which is wonderful, so there's no financial barrier to patients, 
it, OHIP does not pay well uh, for any, uh, for most talking medicine uh, types of things. So like whether it's uh, psychotherapy or in this case, all the advising and recommendations that you have to give as a physician when you're doing lifestyle medicine, it's not re remunerated well. So to be honest, the only reason that I was able to continue to do this was because I didn't, I haven't paid myself since 2018. Um, I just, I actually have a pension from the military uh, because I served over 23 years. And that's why I was able to do this. Things are slightly changing in that some billing codes can be accessed by family doctors that make it a little bit more, hopefully more uh, affordable, because at some point, I'm hoping to pay, be able to pay myself something in the near future. So that's a lot to take on your shoulders. And it sounds like a lot of responsibility. And that's great that you have your pension from the military. But moving forward for how do you see the goals and objectives of this group? And how do you see for your clinic itself moving forward? Yeah, well, actually, for the group, one of our goals for the next two to three years is we want to apply for Royal College of Canada specialization, so that lifestyle medicine will be recognized as a specialty by the Royal College. And apparently, it does take a couple of years for this to occur. And we haven't even started the process yet. Uh, but that is the goal, because I applied for a special standing as a family doctor in Ontario, so that I could access different billing codes, but also so that my billing would not harm other doctors billing, which actually is a thing here in Ontario. But it took me three times to get accepted for this special standing. And so the Royal College, again, recognized by the Royal College with lifestyle medicine being as a specialty, that would make it a lot easier for family doctors in particular, but also for specialists to be recognized for the important work that we're doing because of the fact of the matter is it is a specialty at least when I went to medical school yes we knew that diet was important well what does that mean you know yes physical activity is important you should be active what does that mean right uh, so lifestyle medicine is a specialty should be recognized as such and that will make it a lot easier I think for other for future doctors and for current doctors to get into this incredibly intrins intrinsically rewarding area of practice Mm -hmm. It sounds like there's a lot of hurdles that you have to get through, and you're really setting the path for that. Do you have any advice for those who wish to learn about lifestyle medicine and incorporate it in their practice and set it up for themselves? Or what sort of advice would you have for others? Oh, boy. Well, it, it is important to know that it can be very difficult to craft a practice where it will be financially viable, because most of us do need to be able to draw a salary. And, and of course, I could use a little bit more of it, more money than my pension. Uh, but anyways, one thing that seems to be working well is there's a, a company, a company or a clinic called Aroga, and they're actually coming to Ottawa and I will be working with them in the future. And they, they have a really a team-based approach because one, one uh, negative to my practice is I've been filling all the hats myself. So I talk about diet because uh, most people have to pay to see a registered dietitian. Uh, I talk about exercise. I talk about, you know, I screen people for sleep disorders and then I talk about sleep and, you know, uh, address uh, sleep, sleep issues. And of course I talk, uh, you know, like I talk about everything, right? So a team-based approach is ideal. Um, if you can do it, but Aroga appears to have a really good model wherein uh, people will actually be able to see a registered dietitian at least once or twice, uh, and it will they won't have to pay for it. So again, there won't be that financial barrier. And in terms of getting ready to do it, the board the, this, the board certification that I did with the American Board of Lifestyle Medicine 
it definitely increased my confidence studying for that and then writing the exam. Uh, attending the conferences is very helpful. And yes, you're, you're, most of them are in the States. Uh, Plant-Based Canada, of course, has hosted a couple of one pre-pandemic and then one this year virtually. Uh, so the conferences are a lovely way to increase one's knowledge and get, you know, get fired up with enthusiasm as well, because you're, you're hearing from people who have seen, they know the data and the science, but they also see the effects from the patients that they see. So uh, that can be a fantastic way to learn more about lifestyle medicine. And of course, some of the, most of the conferences are usually able to set up with CME points, which can be of interest for many healthcare providers and especially for doctors as well. No, that's great. And I've noticed on your website that you also link to many other communities or groups that are doing um, plant-based or lifestyle components. So having that community, I feel can be really important. Um, And just going back to what you were talking about in regards to your collaboration with Aroga, I'm a little bit biased on this as a dietitian, but it would be fantastic if they could be covered and have them be more accessible for people to be able to work with. At least for me, myself, I feel that would be such a wonderful opportunity for people. I completely agree. I completely agree. I've referred people. We have we have at least one, but she's a Ottawa's first plant-based art registered dietitian. Evidence-based, fantastic. And people would be like, uh, I'd say to people, well, you know, it's not covered, but would you be interested in seeing her? I can do a referral. Yes, please refer me. And then the referral would come back uh, from the RD as saying, yeah, as soon as they found out it wasn't covered, they they didn't want to pay. So it could be a real barrier uh, because especially for some people with, with specific issues where there can be nutritional dif- uh, deficiencies as well, like, like post-bariatric surgery or whatever, working with an RD can be so fantastic and helpful. So that's one thing that I really loved about the model for Aroga was that seeing an RD, they'd be part of the team, like the team-based approach that we all know it leads to better care, but the financial barrier, because for some reason, uh, yeah, people are willing to pay a lot for medicine or for medicine or healthcare that uh, may actually not be evidence-based and might not be helpful and expensive supplements. They don't always want to pay for the real deal, like registered dietitians. Or, or part of me, I should say they might not be able to pay as well. So fair enough, fair enough. There are barriers as well. And we have to be respectful of that. But just figuring out yes. what works in the system that we currently have, and how do we continue to move forward to make sure that it's effective and efficient for all those and their healthcare. Yes, I totally agree. And just to reiterate, I am a little bit biased here. So just stating that. No, no, no. But I think it's it, to me, the other thing too is, is that your bias is uh, well founded, because, uh, for example, Dr. Dean Ornish has a program in the States, that's actually covered my be- Medicare, and it took him 10 or 15 years to get mm-hmm. that through Congress, he his program has what I call and I think he might call it the dream team. And part of that team is a registered dietitian, right? Because uh, for example, people ask me about calories and I don't, I really don't like to dwell on that, but if somebody really wants to dig into that or how much magnesium they need or are getting or whatever, um, unless there's an underlying health issue, then a registered dietitian can be fantastic to go over these you know, finer pieces of information with regards to nutrition. And I feel in healthcare, it's definitely great to be able to work as a team because everybody has their own unique areas of knowledge to be able to share 
And speaking of practice, I was wondering if you could tell me more and our listeners more about your counseling and approach, for instance, what type of clients or patients do you typically work with and how do you go about it? Yeah, so people usually uh, reach out to the office uh, because uh, people can self-refer. Although if I get a referral from a doctor for a patient, then I'll see the patient and I'll send a letter back to the doctor providing the information in terms of uh, what we talked about, what recommendations I made, uh, if any follow-ups required and that sort of thing. So my approach is, yeah, people either self-refer or get referred. And the first appointment, and this is, I try to line it up so the, bill, uh, unfortunately, so the billing works up, but works out, but it's usually 45 minutes, although oftentimes I'm going over. And during that time, uh, I'm taking a person's medical history. So current health issues, past uh, health issues, family, if there's a, a history, a known family, uh, history of family health issues, that's important as well. Medications they're on, alcohol consumption, uh, do they, are they smoking cigarettes? Are they smoking cannabis? Because that's also pro-inflammatory if it's being smoked. And then I also get, get into the lifestyle, uh, other lifestyle pieces, I should say, I want to find out what they're, you know, what kind of diet, if any, or way of eating that they're following, physical activity, uh, sleep, there's specific questions I ask, you know, just to see if they're well rested in the morning, could they be uh, experiencing obstructive sleep apnea, for example, uh, and then stress management. And so I'll get this information. And of course, I also ask, what is your main concern? Because they may have a significant health issue like type two diabetes or heart disease or asthma, but their main concern might be IBS, right? So it's always important to hear what a patient's concern is, but then I'll be able to talk around and address the other issues as well. If I see somebody for weight management issues, there I actually try not to emphasize the weight thing because weight has such a connotation in our in our society. So if say they they present and they're concerned about their weight, but they also have back pain or knee their knees are sore, then that's what I emphasize is the back pain and you know and possibly the osteoarthritis because there's evidence for back pain and osteoarthritis, right? And then the idea is that I can help decrease their pain, and then as a side effect, the weight will usually decrease as well gently. But I don't like to focus on the weight because it's just such a loaded connotation uh, or you know issue in our society. Yeah, and so then after I've got all their information and know about what their concerns are, I start to talk about recommendations and uh, talk about the evidence behind those recommendations. And uh, then afterwards, I get consent to send them an email, and that will have basically any evidence I've talked about. I use nutritionfacts.org, a free evidence-based website. I use that a lot as a resource for patients, but then sometimes I'll use uh, drmcdougal.com. Dr. John McDougal is an internal medicine specialist from the States, has been practicing since the 80s. Uh, so I'll use uh, and recommend different resources depending on the issues at hand. And then I also send things like on my website, I have something about recipes because sometimes the big thing is, oh my goodness, I don't know what to eat, right? Uh, and then I also have a nice little graph about different types of oils and the amount of saturated fat in each and for pain, uh, although it's not proven, but it's quite possible that the amount of linoleic acid uh, or omega-6 in each oil could have a contributing factor to any pain that a person might have. Oh, that's fantastic. It sounds like there's so many different areas, but I really like your approach on finding out what is of most interest to your patient or client and working with them to try to address their needs and their actual goals. In that regard, do you find that there's any um, perceptions or maybe misconceptions that you feel still exist? And how do you think health professionals as well as the public can help dispel these? Right. So there's actually a lot of perceptions that occur 
uh, in part, sometimes, and sometimes you're driven by people in the plant-based community. So people will say, I can't eat bread anymore. I can't eat sugar anymore. I can never have oil again, uh, or sometimes, or uh, I'm already vegan. I'm good, you know, but I'm still unhealthy. Right. Uh, so for example, sugar, I'm not saying sugar, like, like sugars are, and I'm not talking about fruit, fruit is fructose. And as you know, but if we're talking refined sugars, and, and that could be maple syrup or honey, or well, honey is less refined, but maple syrup, white sugar, brown sugar, it's all processed and not ideal. But people come into my office and say, I guess I can't sh- have sugar anymore. And I say, no, 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 no. And basically, I'll just say, you know, if you have uh, untreated diabetes, there's a study that demonstrates that a person with diabetes is not well controlled, they might have an increased pain or feel their pain more if they don't if they have more sugar in their diet. But uh, I, I really want to make this this a way of eating sustainable for people. Sometimes people will say, Oh, I can't have salt. So I go through the fact that there's no evidence that we can't have any salt in our diet uh, at all. Now, depending on the person's health issue, I might tell them to be very cautious, like if they have kidney disease, or a heart failure, then they'll want to be cautious about their salt intake. Yeah, and let's see what else. Oh, uh, vegan, why am I not healthy yet? Of course, vegan, uh, as you know, can be heavily processed foods like Beyond Burgers, uh, which are delicious, but have two different types of oil in them, I believe. And so there's a, some, some preconceived notions. Oh, I can never eat meat again. Obviously, I'm not a fan of meat. There's no evidence for it. But I want to, uh, again, it's about patient-centered care. It's about meeting people where they're at. And so if somebody's like, I can never eat meat, I'll be like, okay, if you want to see a benefit, then if you could cut down on the amount of meat and start filling your plate more with other, the, the fruits, the vegetables, question, maybe not the fruit, but the vegetables, the whole grains, maybe some legumes, and cutting down on the amount, you should still see some sort of a benefit. And you're you know, saving money at the grocery store as well. So yeah, those are some of the preconceptions and I'm sure I've heard a few more, but I can't think of them right now. It sounds like it's mainly focusing on that whole food plant-based approach, but even within that, there's many different ways of going about the plant-based dietary pattern and lifestyle. And it's finding the one that is more healthier and works best for you and your situation. Yeah, no, I completely agree. Again, meeting people with where they're at and the whole food plant base. Yes, I I push that, but I am not perfect myself. I have had Beyond Burgers. I even had the new Beyond uh, Chicken Tenders or whatever at A&W. And so it's, it's so important. And it also, it depends on who I'm seeing, right? If somebody's got a uh, congestive heart failure, then my recommendations are going to be a little bit tighter, but I still believe in patient autonomy and they can do what they want. They, they'll have the recommendations and the evidence from me and they can make their own decisions as we all do. But yeah, so whole food plant-based a way of eating is of course the ideal, but sometimes if we're traveling, if we've got too much on the go, or if it's just not possible is, you know, I, I love what, uh, Dr. Michael Greger will say is, is not whether it's good or bad, it's, is it better then? So if I have a Beyond Burger, is that health food? No, but is it healthier than having a beef burger? Most likely it is. Uh, so that's a good approach, but really meeting people with where they're at, because honestly, if I was a zealot about this and saying, you will never have fun in your life again, you can never have steak again. That's the other thing too. Uh, then many patients would be like, this is too hard. Uh, me, for me, myself, pre-pandemic, I, you know, occasionally I'd go to the keg with my girlfriends. I haven't had a steak in years. And the last time I had it was actually, I was already eating mostly whole, like I'd say whole food plant based, but I was like, I'll have a steak and it tasted good, but then I regretted it hours later. And that was probably 2014, 2015. Since then, I'll go to the keg. And I always tell, I know in my mind, I can have a steak if I want, 
I haven't wanted one for years now. And instead I get all the other, like, you know, maybe like, like a, the, the baked potato and a salad and everything. And so I'm delicious. It's delicious. I'm satisfied. And my bill always comes in with less, you know, less than my friends. Yeah. But, but not, oh, sorry. I was just going to say not limit, not limiting one, oneself. I think it's important. And by that, I mean, if somebody doesn't have serious health issues then just knowing that, okay, if I really wanted to have a steak, I could have one might be a better approach than saying I can never have steak again. Now, as you know, mo- most people, when we go plant-based or whole, whole food plant-based, either way, over time, you just don't want the steak, you know, anymore. And I used to, I used to, I used to have steak and I, and I enjoyed it. And now I would never have it. And it's not necessarily, it is from an ethical perspective, but also even from a nutritional perspective, I just know the evidence, right? So if I'm going to, if I'm going to uh, temporarily harm my arteries, I'll just do it with like a Beyond Burger as to, as opposed to <laughs> a beef, you know, and beef, of course, has a climate perspective, environmental perspective as well. And it's so interesting how our bodies adapt to these different situations. You mentioned even after you had the animal product, your body didn't feel the greatest afterwards. So it's so interesting how that happens. Oh, yes. Well, you know, and I paid for it hours later, I, I recall quite, uh, quite, oh, no. uh, quite or not fondly but yeah and even like our taste buds change quickly as well so when I was growing up I guess as a young adult a broccoli and cauliflower I would not eat it unless it like it was a vehicle for a cheese sauce right <laughs> and now like I will if I steam them I will be eating them I'll just eat them without anything on them whatsoever and it's like it's I don't know who this person is I didn't grow up loving vegetables and I just ate didn't you know typical green beans peas and corn and now oh, you know, beets, fantastic, right? So it's interesting how our taste buds change and getting back to how our bodies react though too. Now, if I if I um, have something with a lot of oil, because I don't have, like I, I've actually stopped eating chips for the last month or so, which is something because I, I definitely have a bit of food, food addictive tendencies. But if I were to go back and eat chips now, they might taste good going down, although actually they don't even taste that good now, which is lovely, mm-hmm. but also, I will feel worse and I will, it will mm. affect my sleep and I'll have stomach pain and that sort of thing uh, because too much oil, oil is not a natural uh, food for us. It's highly processed. And so many people, if they go away from oil, they'll find that they may even have gastrointestinal symptoms and not good ones uh, if they eat something with a lot of oil in it. Yeah. It's so interesting how that happens. And I find that even if at first we don't like a specific food, like we find that broccoli is too bitter, beets taste a certain way, it's you have to try things a certain number of times. And then all of a sudden it's like, oh, this is delicious. I've been missing this all these years, but it does take a while. It is so true. And then there's also sometimes there's tips and tricks that you can find on the internet. So for example, kale can sometimes be a little bit tough to eat, but if you mm-hmm. have a, if you like a kind of, I guess, a, um, it can be a bit tough, but if you massage it, I believe, then it, you can, it can end up with a delicious salad and just, a, or you can put in a smoothie or whatever. And then all of a sudden, like even the smoothies that have more vegetables in initially, the person might be better off with more fruit because otherwise it doesn't taste right. But my goodness, their taste buds change. And then I know personally, I'm just, I don't know who this person is because I'm eating so many vegetables and so many fruits. So it does take some dedication at the beginning, I find, but then as you go on, it becomes easier and easier. But it's that initial change that is always the hardest. It is interesting, though, when I did my initial change myself, mm-hmm. and I 
didn't do it for health reasons, in, in environmental reasons, or climate change reasons, or or ethics. I did it only for, I'm probably one of the only people who's done it for leadership reasons, because I was an officer in the military and a doctor. And I was about to tell some of my patients, some of whom like to you know hunt and kill small game and fish and that sort of thing. If I was going to tell them to eat whole food plant-based, I thought from a leadership perspective, I'd better do this myself. And I was eating mostly plant-based at home, but I also knew every drive-through in Petawawa, right? <laughs> um, so uh, yeah, and I remember at the time I had a four pack of crunchy chocolate bars in my fridge and I was usually going through one chocolate bar maybe every day or every second day. And I told, my, and I told myself, getting back to what I said before, if I really want one, I'll have one. A month later, I gave the entire package away because I, I no longer desired it. Now, cheese, as you have heard oftentimes, cheese was a different matter where it, it's still, you know, if I'm really hungry, I'll be like, yeah, I could go I, and I don't want it. But it's just it still kind of has an addictive property, right? Even after so many years. But the, the chocolate bars, it was really interesting how quickly, you know, how quickly that just changed. Now, if I want some chocolate, I'll, yeah, I can either get vegan chocolate or I also like to get a chocolate oat milk and have a hot chocolate. Maybe not now in this weather, but in the fall. <laughs> yeah, hopefully. Yeah, it, <laughs> it's great how there's so many different products available now and that companies and others are being more conscientious of where our food comes from and the types of foods that are being offered. I completely agree. Like, uh, And I know, for example, I tried soy milk in the early 2000s and I was just, I just remember going, oh my goodness. And now it's, it's delicious, right? So uh, there's so many different things out there to try. Uh, you know, some may be less healthy than others. Soy milk for the record is of course, very healthy, pre- preventative for breast cancer and that sort of thing. But um, yeah, no, it is, it's amazing how the landscape has changed, how it continues to change. And one great thing is we have a, a significant population, millennials and younger growing up, and they're insisting on this as well, uh, sometimes more so for climate emergency, but it's wonderful. Whatever reasoning we use to be cutting down our animal product consumption is fantastic for our health and for planetary health as well. Mm -hmm. And I just want to circle back to something that you mentioned a little while ago about how you took on a plant-based dietary pattern as a leadership opportunity in the military. How did you find the response by those in the military was to this? And what were their thoughts about this lifestyle? Well, my patients, my patients were uh, skeptical for sure. And I had two patients who smoked during their dietary trial, although I didn't know about it at the time. And sure enough, it didn't help them with their chronic pain, right? And and the other thing too, I've learned is if somebody says, well, I'm cutting down my dairy, that probably means you're not cutting down or whatever. It does probably usually mean translates into I'm not cutting down at all. Um, but I had one patient and, um, and he was at his wit's end. He was usually incredibly fit, had had a back, a back injury, and he already, he didn't smoke, he didn't drink. And he decided to just try this whole hog, if I may say that. And, uh, and 30 days later, 30 days later, he was able to ruck, which means a walking, carrying a heavy backpack. He was able to run. Uh, and he also found out very quickly because he liked ice cream and meat. If he had ice cream or meat, give it two to three hours and his back pain would come back and it would increase. So uh, from the patient perspective, he, he totally bought into it and it worked for him, but uh, some patients were skeptical and unfortunately within health services, like the, in the, the military medical organization, there was a uh, very little to no buy-in. I had one person 
the senior physiatrist in the in the military. And he was a very big fan because he, of course, dealt with people who were severely injured and it's like for physical rehabilitation and recovery. And so he 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 looked into the evidence and knew that it worked. But I I actually wrote a, a paper, like a long essay, just trying to encourage before the Canada Food Guide was changed. I was uh, making a case for for changing our dietary recommendations in the military to whole food plant-based because that was where the evidence was. And just from my, I didn't even look up all the medications that are prescribed in the military. I focused on some of the most popular ones. And just with that, $10 million savings per year. And I thought maybe they'll be interested because there's a cost savings. Nope. Uh, People, more senior people in the military health services organization were very, very risk adverse. And so even though it would have meant significant financial savings and significant relieving of suffering, right, for people with pain or blood pressure or type 2 diabetes that may be very difficult to control, it went nowhere. And that was the good news was that was a really big sign that I needed to move on and start to do this in an environment where I could at least provide my own support and help patients out directly. That's so surprising, given the evidence and that not only it had potential health implications, but also financial, which I feel is such a driver for change within the healthcare system and other systems as well, that it wasn't taken up. You have mentioned evidence throughout our discussion today, and I was wondering if there's other points or evidence regarding lifestyle medicine that we have not yet discussed that you think would be important for our listeners to hear. Oh boy. So I'm, and, you know, and I'm, I tend to go, and of course this is plant-based Canada. So I guess me going down the dietary rabbit hole is not totally inappropriate, but lifestyle is of course a four, you know, it's also the sleep, the uh, physical activity, stress management, reduction of any risky or harmful substance use, but let's focus on diet because it's plant-based Canada. So there is like, there is good evidence for Boy, the list is so long that it's sometimes easier to say that for chronic health issues, what there is no ev- no evidence for. And uh, things I can think of off the top of my head are, for example, post-concussion syndrome, ALS, Lou Gehrig's disease. Uh, neither of those seem to have any evidence, unfortunately, right? And that doesn't mean that might not help. Uh, especially if you look at everything, because ALS, there's been at least one person, and this is like, I think it's just anecdotal, but one person actually had significant improvements with physical activity, believe it or not. And he's still alive when he's kind of outlived, he's outdone his, uh, his life, his predicted life expectancy based on the disease he has. But for dietary, yeah, it's for cardiovascular, like even congestive heart failure, there's several uh, case reports now published of people improving their their ejection fraction for their heart, like how efficiently their heart uh, moves the blood uh, with uh, medications as appropriate. But also the big thing is is, is, uh, transitioning to whole food plant-based very low to no oil, which is of course processed food uh, diet. Um, blood pressure, of course, people who've had a heart attack, people who've had a stroke for, for thinking cardiovascular disease, migraines, let's see, I'm just trying to go through the, the different systems, asthma, eczema, acne, psoriasis, uh, psoriatic arthritis, osteoarthritis, rheumatoid arthritis for sure, boy, uh, Crohn's disease, ulcerative colitis, uh, IBS, uh, constipation for sure, especially if you move dairy, most, uh, most uh, people are, are lactose intolerant, of course, 
back pain, there's no direct evidence, but it's, uh, I always say it's all always about blood flow. And so for back pain, the size of the arteries that feed our, our lumbar vertebrae, uh, the size of the arteries are smaller than the coronary arteries. So what I'll say to patients is what are, you know, which artery might get blocked up first with cholesterol, like atherosclerotic plaques, right? So back pain seems to improve with uh, eating whole food plant-based as well. So I'm sorry, I'm going on and on, but that's because it's a very long, oh, one more thing, gynecologic issues. Uh, so dysmenorrhea, painful periods, endometriosis, polycystic ovarian syndrome. Yeah, so those as a minimum uh, would also have evidence for them. Oh, and prostate cancer, sorry for the gentleman. I'll stop now. And breast cancer, sorry, prevention. See, the list is very long. I apologize. It sounds like the list can go on and on, but it also sounds like there are many areas that we still need more research in. You had mentioned that anecdotal or case reports and much of the research that we tend to rely on a lot in terms of knowing the certainty of evidence tends to be more randomized controlled trials or looking at systematic reviews and meta-analyses. So it seems like there's still a far way to go in order to see what's actually going on. point because some of the research will not be high quality research definitely will not be rcts and there can be weaknesses in the study so for example i think there was a study on dysmenorrhea women with painful periods and one of the flaws in, in the study was that when the women who it was a crossover study i believe and the women who had uh, tried whole food plant-based some of them were refusing to go back to their original diet because their their periods were you know the period pain had decreased and so but that actually becomes a, a negative from, from the uh, from the study integrity perspective so but i totally agree more more uh, work definitely needs to be done uh, but the way i put it is would, would put it uh, with this if i was seeing somebody where they had a condition for which there wasn't good evidence i my approach would be well you can try this out see how you feel and know that but just by doing this you're also dropping your risk of type 2 diabetes or you know treating and or reversing it if you already have it cardiovascular disease dementia, uh, cancers, you know, the list is long, like where you're actually, you know, and you might actually save money at the grocery store and uh, feel better, you know, in the short run as well. And that's the other thing that's really nice about doing a dietary transition is, as you know, it doesn't take long uh, for people to feel different. Uh, So I'm not saying, oh, six months, you might feel feel different. I'm saying two to three weeks, right? Maybe four weeks if we're talking back pain and some other issues. Uh, So it doesn't take long. And and it just makes sense. We're dropping people's risk and hopefully they're feeling, experiencing the benefit. Biomarkers may also improve, which also sometimes the numbers are nice to see as well. So mm-hmm. it seems like even if you're adopting this type of practice for one aspect, it may have a ripple effect and benefits to other aspects as well. Oh, yeah, no, I totally agree. Because like, for example, like I said before, I I had tried this, uh, I decided to do this diet for leadership reasons, because if I was telling patients to do this, and as an officer, I felt I should be doing this myself. And it took me, I'm a slow learner, it probably took me at least a year to realize that I had totally changed my risk profile for the variety of diseases that run in my in my family. So type two diabetes, uh, blood pressure, eczema, asthma, even seasonal allergies, there's no evidence for this, but I haven't taken reactin or claritin since 2013, 2014. And I used to have to be on that like clockwork in the summer. Let's see what else. Uh, da, 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 da. Colon so cancer, brain cancer. Yeah. Like, uh, like the list is very long, but I've totally changed my health, my, my trajectory. Now it doesn't mean I can't get these things, but my risk of getting them is much, much decreased because of how I'm eating and to some extent, the other lifestyle factors. And I only say that because 
I don't sleep well, and I should be more physically active than I am. But uh, for the most part, yeah, my lifestyle factors have totally changed my health trajectory, you know, or potential uh, from the family history perspective. That's great to hear. And we're going to shift gears slightly because you continue to take on leadership roles within the community, whether it's within your own health practice or others. And I was wondering if you could speak more about your community involvement and perhaps share a little bit about your experiences running for a political party, because I've noticed that you are very active and involved um, and your experience so far and in the past in regards to your the response of the government, as well as the community to quote unquote, green practices, if you will. Yeah, so my community involvement, I guess has been more so like across the country in terms of being involved in lifestyle medicine. And, uh, and, and sometimes doctors will reach out to me asking about lifestyle medicine, how to get involved, what to do and that sort of thing. I applied, I've had medical students for the last couple of years, and I finally applied for, uh, you know, just uh, faculty status with the University of Ottawa, and I was accepted. So I'm a lecturer, which is nice, because my hope is that I might be able to get a foot in the door to teach about diet, nutrition, and the new can of food guide, because I think it's so important to have somebody who has more qualifications and understands the whys for, of eating more whole food plant-based, which is of course a recommendation from the new can of food guide. Yeah. And then otherwise, basically I, uh, in terms of contributing to the community, yes, I ran for politics actually in 2019 and I'm currently a candidate in this uh, federal election this fall. I'm with the green party of Canada. And the thing I like about the green party is that it is evidence-based it wasn't as much evidence-based with their platform in 2019. There was a paragraph that they were concerned and were hopeful that things would change because they thought that uh, dairy provided a good source of calcium and protein or something like that. So they were actually endorsing dairy products for calcium and protein. But the good thing is, is that our platform has not burned waste, but I have good reason to believe because I'm the shadow critic for health, that it's quite possible that there won't be mention of uh, dairy specifically because there doesn't need to be, and because we're an evidence-based party. And also, uh, I believe, I'm not sure, but I'm, let's say I'm fairly confident there will be a, a recommendation that the new can of food guide be fully implemented uh, because it is evidence-based in its recommendation for eating whole food plant-based. So yeah, and uh, the Green Party, I find, has been definitely open to hearing about whole food plant-based. I haven't done a lot of talking about it because there's so many other health issues, of course, that we are seeing in Canada, but there hasn't been the reticence or reluctance uh, that I've, of course, seen in different walks of life, like in the military, in in health services in the military. Thank you very much for sharing. And I just want to encourage everybody who is able to, to get out and find out more about politics in your area and to vote. Um, Before I get to the last question, Dr. Purdy, could you tell myself and listeners where we can find you about your website, how people can learn more about all the work that you're doing? Okay, thank you. So my work as a doctor, I have a website, OttawaLifestyleMedicine.ca. And basically on that website, you'll see like, um, 
basically the the services I provide and they're they're covered by the Ontario Health Card. Uh, but I also have a resources page uh, which has a bunch of books and websites, podcasts, and documentaries that uh, I think are very useful. And they're not all about diet, although most of them are. And the books are usually uh, available from, like for example, the books I cite, I believe, are all available from our, our local library, Ottawa Public Library, just because again accessibility is so important. So that's the the website with regards to my professional life as a as a lifestyle medicine correction family doctor practicing lifestyle medicine and then my website as a green candidate is jenniferperdy.ca and it's still in development but there's a little bit up there about you know my platform which of course is climate emergency and also just people being healthier right uh, we and uh, both goals are actually you know they're identical. If we don't get climate emergency right, then a person's individual health matters. It does, but it's going to be a lot more challenged as years go on, and it's already being challenged by climate emergency. Right, people having more difficulty breathing because of the haze this summer and that sort of thing. Very important aspects to consider about the environment as well as our own individual health. To close things out. Do you have a final take-home message for listeners or something that you really want people to walk away from this discussion thinking about? So, okay, so I, I know I might be speaking to a lot of people who are already whole food plant-based or eating plant-based. And I think my message would be way to go. Keep eating a plant, you know, as more whole food plant-based as possible, because I know it's not always possible for everyone. But when you're doing this, you're doing fantastic things for your health. And of course, there's a big impact on climate emergency. And of course, you know, it's always important to be compassionate. And so uh, for animal welfare, too, I think there's an advantage, obviously, in eating more whole food plant-based. And then for people who might uh, not be completely uh, whole food plant-based yet or partially, but are curious, I think it's so important to maybe just dip your toe in the water. There's different uh, ways to do it. Uh, There's actually a book on my website under the resources page. It's called One Meal a Day or OMD. And that's the idea where you start with maybe with one meal a day of going plant-based. And so breakfast might be oatmeal instead of like a sausage breakfast sandwich. I'd also suggest that if you're not whole food plant-based or plant-based, be cautious about what you see in online forums, because sometimes people will be very vocal about how they are 100% whole food plant-based. They don't have any salt. They don't have any oil. They don't have any sugar. And they think everybody else should do the same. And uh, that might be way too far for most people. It'd be a bridge too far for me as well. So it's important to uh, be compassionate towards yourself and do what you can, do what feels right, but understand the more whole food plant-based we are, the more we drop our risk for disease and we're saving money and we're saving the environment and, and it just feel better. We have more energy. Thank you so much, Dr. Purdy, for your compassion, for all of your work, and of course, for speaking with us today. I really enjoyed our talk, and I hope that our listeners do too. It was lovely, and thank you so very much for for having me. I, I don't know about you, but these talks and everything, they're so energizing, so it's giving me the energy for the rest of the day, which is lovely. Thank you. This episode was hosted by myself, Stephanie Nishi. And Clint Stamatovich is our audio engineer. This podcast featured royalty-free music from bensound.com. A very special thanks to our guest, Dr. Jennifer Purdy, for speaking with us and sharing her insights and experiences. And of course, thank you for listening. 
The Plant-Based Canada podcast is an initiative of the group Plant-Based Canada, which aims to educate the public and health professionals on the evidence-based benefits of plant-based whole food nutrition for individual and planetary health. To learn more about the show, visit our website at www.plantbasedcanada.org and stay up to date by following us on Instagram and Facebook at plantbasedcanada.org. Until next time.